Romans chapter 13. As you turn there, you know, there's been a massive snowstorm on the East Coast in Boston and New York. It's snowstorm is, uh, I think the storm is called Nemo. I don't know about you, but I, I don't think back to the reference it probably is, which is the Jules Verne book. I think of little clownfish. Don't you? I mean, that's our culture now. So I think of storm clownfish coming in. And, but it has dumped massive amounts of snow on the East Coast on New York. So you talk about the weather coming in and these storm clouds coming in and the snow and how it comes down and socks in the whole place. And, and, and then afterwards, you talk about some of the practical things about how you, you take the snow away from the cars and shovel yourself out and get yourself out of whatever you've been in. We're doing that in Romans. We can't always talk about the formation of the storm clouds, i.e. the content of the gospel. But something radical has swept in on our lives, hasn't it? We know Jesus. It's an amazing thing. This, this idea that, that's true, that our righteousness comes from Christ alone. The idea that our justification, we stand before the almighty God because of the sacrifice of Christ. A, a blameless, holy, living sacrifice. And now we're talking in Romans 13 about some of the snow shoveling. Like how does the, the gospel, the fact that it's happened, impact how we do some things, how we look at some things in our practical daily life. But I don't want, as we start this morning, don't want us to dive into chapter 13 and forget we're in chapter 13, not in chapter 1. Don't want you to think, oh, that this is isolated from somehow the gospel, or now we're into some commands, oh, this is how things work. No, it's all tied in to the fact and wonder of the gospel. And I want to show you how those ties work as we go through Romans 13. There has been a radical change, and our main response is love. We looked at that last week about how as a living sacrifice we are to love genuinely. And so now we're living a life of love. What is it? look like and there are some surprising ways in which it plays out so we want to look first starting in verse 1 of chapter 13 let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God okay let's just stop right there what that you just started with love. There's a big heart on the screen. You said, let everybody be in subject to the governing authorities. What? Why is this even here? Why did Paul, in the middle of chapter 12, talking about loving, even loving your enemies, now we're saying be subject to the government. Why does he take up this theme? He takes up this theme because of the gospel. Don't miss that. The statement that you and I would say that Jesus is Lord. Do you say that this morning? Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. Do you realize that's a political statement? Do you realize you're saying he's your king? Do you realize you're saying there's no other for you than Jesus to be your Lord? That's a statement. And at the time, the time that Paul lived in, that was an amazing statement. People had fought over these things. The Maccabean Wars had happened, right? These incredible fights to try and throw off the tyranny of these other lords. And now we have Jesus, the Messiah has come. He's the king. And each of us have a new king. It's a little hard for us to get into the, the, the situation because we don't have a king. But they had authority. And in fact, Jesus said himself, the end of Matthew, right? Before he left. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, he said what? All authority has been given to the government. 
No, he did not. He said, all authority has been given to me. So we have a new king. He's not Caesar. It's not a monarch. It's not Bush or Obama in our context. It's King Jesus. And yet we have these statements that say, our citizenship, like Philippians 3.20, it goes along with that, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. So we are members of a new kingdom. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've been taken from the kingdom of the world and put into a new kingdom with Jesus Christ as its head. And then my question is, and it's right that it's here then, how do I relate to these kingdoms of the world? The earthly rule that you're under. And it's, he's saying quite clearly, this is the, this is the peace. Be subject to, be submissive to, be under the governing authorities, even though you're a member of a new kingdom. The reason there is clear too, he says it, right? For there's no authority except from God. God has instituted these authorities. Wow. Think through this with me. We're going to have to do this a couple of times. Romans 8 itself, doesn't it? Talk about how they've been hit by the sword and by even rulers and authorities can't separate you from Christ. Isn't it true that Paul's going to die at the hands of the government? How does this work? Haven't we just come off a breathless passage? It's wonderful about the mercies we're to even give to our enemies. Give to your enemies, give to your enemies. And, and, and is that really how... It's supposed to work that even now in our government and the world that we're in, we just we just sort of, okay, whatever happens, happens. Maybe he'll say something more balanced. I, I don't know that I like that exactly. Let's keep on going and look. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no one fear the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Huh. Okay, so we look and say, well, I, I guess I can see it a, a bit. I can walk down this road, walk it down with me. See what civil society is, right? We're living, waiting for heaven, but we're in a civil society, and that's a great blessing. It's a gift from God, because law restrains evil, doesn't it? Not all evil, we know, but what about if there was nothing, and there was just whatever anybody said went, and, 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 and then there'd be anarchy, and, and everybody would be carrying their rifles. I know some people think we're headed there, storing up on ammunition. So they can defend just themselves. But it's a great blessing when we have, don't have that when we have general peace, isn't it? And from here is a statement. If we really are giving our vengeance to God, here's the statement that the civil authorities are the ones who will wield God's wrath, at least in a temporal sense. Not you or I, but the authorities. God's plan, God's way. So if I, if I do what is good, the text says, I have nothing to fear. God's authority is there temporally in civil government to back us up. So in verse 5, he says, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, 
but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So he just lays out for us in stark, clear terms. We obey the government because it's ordained by God. You know, the God who came and died for us. <laughs> that God, the only God. It's there several times in the text. My life has been changed radically by God, so I trust him. And if I trust him, then here comes the statement for me to just accept and swallow. He set up the government for good. They're there for our good, right? Verse 4 says it. They bear the sword, so watch out. If, if they're the ones who have been given authority by God to temporarily execute judgment. And then might really should enforce the right. Not the governments make what is right, but they're there to enforce moral and ethical behavior. So you submit to them, you and I, because that's what God has to enforce the right. They're not making it. They're enforcing the moral truth that God is setting out for the world. And the example then given there in verse 5 and verse 6 is we pay our taxes to the government, even though we're part of another kingdom. Especially because you're part of another kingdom. This world is not your home. If the authority over you requires of you what it can require, we're to give it. And not just Paul said that, right? But Jesus said it in Mark chapter 12. Took the coin, said, hey, do we have to give this in taxes? We don't want to pay our taxes. We're not, you're our king now, Jesus, not the Caesar guy. We don't like him. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, that's walking through the text. I hope you have some questions. Because I sure do. I read that and I go, okay, Dax, you just walk me through it. Everyone's kind of falling asleep. Yeah, it looks like there, you know, that's walking through and it looks like government's supposed to be good. Are you crazy? What cloud is Paul living in? Governments are there to do good? Is this true? Okay, several questions. And I don't mean to demean Paul or, or, or be light. I mean, you read this and your eyes and heart have to really be awake to not go, What? I'm not going to ask you to show your hand, but I could raise your hand saying, how many of you love the government and know that it does good all the time? I think very few people would raise their hands. Power corrupts, right? He can't mean all government we're supposed to submit to. Can he mean that? It must be just the good governments that do that rightly, right? Isn't that what he means? Don't you think that that's what he's talking about? No. He means actually... All governments, you know, actually you can find in the Bible that God sets up even wicked rulers. I'll give you a couple, just so you can look up later if you want to jot it down. You can look up 1 Kings chapter 12, talking about Jeroboam, who was an evil ruler. And it says there that it was a turn of affairs. This is the, I'm not, this is a quote from 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15, that the setting up of Jeroboam was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. God came and set up. He, he ordered affairs so that what happened was that this man became king who was not a good man. Nebuchadnezzar, remember Nebuchadnezzar? People kind of like him because he seemed to repent and he was a God, he was but so prideful that God had to make him into a, a lawnmower. A beast that ate grass. 
But in Jeremiah 27, 6, listen what God says of this evil man who was the one who destroyed Jerusalem. He says this, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. What did God say? Yeah, this this man who is against the Israelites, God's chosen people. God says, that's my servant over there. Whoa. We all know Pilate. People know Pilate, right? Or Pilate is the one who actually was weak enough, even though he may have tried to, he was weak enough that he, he, he sent Jesus to the cross. He was the authority over the Palestinian area and Jerusalem at that time. And in John 10, Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's talking to Jesus. And Jesus said back to him, did he say to him, no, you don't. No, actually what he says, if you have authority, it's just because I've given it to you. God gave even Pilate authority. I put this one on the screen. Love and government, that's what we're in. This is Daniel chapter 2. This kind of this idea that is true and is true through the gospel even is that God changes times and seasons. God removes and sets up kings, right? He gives wisdom to the wise. He keeps going. But that phrase, he removes and sets up kings. God's in charge of putting authorities in place, civil authorities, even ones who were wrong. In our sight. So I, I think we need to give this just a little more thought this morning. It seems like Paul knew that even though the government he was under was ungodly, he definitely knows he's saved. We've been walking through this in Romans. He's saved and in another kingdom with Jesus Christ as its head. And yet he's telling us without qualifications, here's what you do. This is love. What does it mean? Here's the problem for us mostly. The problem for us mostly is that it's not my way. Think about who you are. Think about what Romans 12 told us to be. What did it say? You are a living sacrifice. What does that mean? You're going to humble yourself under Jesus. You're going to say, Lord, I trust that you are in charge. You are the way. And then I then test me right away because I look at our society. And I look at where we're going and I say, this can't be right. I've got to get back in the game. I've got to be in charge. I've got to be the one who says what. I've got to, we've got to do something. This is an injustice. It's got to be changed. And I will lay the way. We, come on, guys. Let's go fight. When the Bible actually says, no, wait. God sets up authorities and you submit to them. Be self-sacrificial, we're to be. So thinking of what God's done, who's able to shape anything and stop being self-centered even in society because that's our witness. If I really love, then I'm saying I, I'm humble. I have nothing. I'm, I, I, boy, humility and trusting God is way more important than our civil liberties. And I say that with trembling. So I know from this, I know that, that God can do tomorrow, even today, he can change the heart of our rulers. He can change our authority. So we don't have a culture of corruption and graft like you see sometimes as you look in the newspaper, even in our land. 
It could happen. So the question really that comes up then, if I say the baseline is I'm supposed to submit to authorities, then the question becomes, when don't, don't I have to? Isn't that kind of the question? When is civil disobedience okay? When is it okay then, in light of this passage, to go against what the government says to do? When are we the change? So we need to listen to the text though, right? We're in another kingdom. We're here on earth under authorities who will not last. We're willing to be sacrificial. So some of them are requiring of us our worldly goods, taxes, and we're to give them. That can't be something we should fight against. I love our country. But doesn't this put the American Revolution in another light? Didn't, didn't a lot of the things that happen in our society and in the things that we think about refer to how people take Romans 13? Remember the phrase, no taxation without representation? That was, a, that was, that was, our, it was based there. The tea parties are throwing things off. There were, they were revolts to say, we're not going to pay taxes. We refuse to pay more taxes. Isn't that what it was? That's brutal if I think about, oh, wait a minute. He just says, give the government their taxes. You ever read the Declaration of Independence? I love it. It's a fantastic document. Let me quote from you. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. I don't think they read Romans 13. Or is it true that actually, even in our country, that I, I say our country with quotes because where's our country? I'm standing in church. Where's our country? It's over here, right? It's, it's in the kingdom of Christ. It's in the kingdom of God. I, I love America and I am an American and I, I love the United States and oh, what freedoms we have. What amazing things I want to see happen. But don't think that that statement in the Declaration of Independence follows scripture because it doesn't. That's a man-centered thing. And indeed, some of the people who wrote these things, they didn't, weren't particularly Christian. They believed in deism. They believed that, that man needed to seize the opportunity because God was far off watching. And so we, we set up these things with checks for men to be in charge because we cannot trust the power of government. And that's okay, except it ignores Romans 13. It does. So when, when is civil disobedience okay? I'm not saying, by the way, we go back. God allowed that to happen. God allows things to happen in this world that are tinged and tainted, doesn't he? And he even brings good from it. And we have such good, and I stand here in freedom, speaking freely from Scripture. I love that we can do it. But when would we say, from the text in our Bible, when is civil disobedience okay? Is it ever okay to break the laws and go against the government? And you have to say, of course it is. We can find some parts, right, that say that. I hope you know. We can go back to Daniel, right? Remember Daniel in Daniel 6? The king's law goes out. Daniel, godly man. The king's law goes out. Pray only to the king, who's going to be God now. What does Daniel do? He goes back and prays to God. Wait, he didn't submit to the government. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't, but he did, didn't fight when they came and took him away, did he? He didn't pray and then run. 
he had a direct command, civil disobedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember those three? Those were their Babylonian names, but that's how they're identified in Daniel chapter 3. They were supposed to all bow down to this big idol representing the king. It's that king, those different kings. But boy, they had quite an idea of who should worship. So they're supposed to bow down to those kings. Did they do it? It was a law. No, they didn't do it. And they got thrown in the furnace, and indeed God saved them, but they didn't fight getting thrown in the furnace, did they? There's more. You can go to the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. There's Kings 18, Joshua 2, with Rahab not following the law of the land in order to hide the spies. It seems to be that where there's a clear violation of moral law with no sense of self-preservation, it's, it's okay to stand up and say, if God commands... I have to do, or if God forbids, I can't do. This makes sense. I hope you see this makes sense. I mean, is it morally right to jaywalk, to go save someone who's being held at gunpoint? Sorry, I can't come help you. I have to wait for the white arrow. It's red right now. Is it okay to break into your neighbor's house when it's on fire in order to save an infant? Oh, no, I must get permission to come into your house first. No, that's ridiculous. We wouldn't do that. So, so you can see that, that, that there are things that we do. And in fact, in Acts 29, um, Acts actually chapter 5, verse 29, where Peter and the apostles are before the governing authorities there, the religious authorities, and they charge them, don't talk about this Jesus anymore. And they say, no. They say, We must obey God there in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. That just says, we must literally, we must obey God rather than men. So here we are, we're wanting to obey God rather than men. And so if there's something explicit, if civil law commands what God forbids, or if civil law forbids what God commands, then we follow God. Is it okay to stand in front of an abortion clinic with signs? Of course it is. But it's okay, too, to submit to the consequences of that and don't flee. We don't disobey Scripture when we call something wrong. We don't kill someone because we're afraid they might do something wrong. Our problem is, is that a lot of our civil disobedience involves not doing things explicitly commanded by God. We want to step in and play God, and the Bible says don't. The reality is we're more constrained than we think. Even in our civil liberty prioritized America, what we're here to do, we're supposed to submit to authority, government. For us, that's not just the president, that's not just police, but that's also our constitution. Right? For us, we say, hey, our governing document is the Constitution. And so we're given legal avenues by which we can have dissent and, and make our voice known. All of that is legal. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when can you go against the law? And we need to really step back and say, this is not my kingdom. And I'm about love. Because that's what my Savior wants me to do. 
Now, love isn't passive. It doesn't mean I just step back and I let injustices happen. No, I step in. It can be both sides of that, right? There in Matthew 5, we see that because Jesus did that, right? Didn't he He say in Matthew 5, verse 43, first what he does, he says, hey, if somebody mistreats you, that's okay. But then he also says, if someone asks you for help, even your enemy, you go with him the extra mile. You do something active with them. You don't just get hit on. You also have positive actions for the good of enemies. Sometimes our enemies, people that don't know Jesus, that they're, they're kids. Or it's, there's, a, there's a group of people and we kind of step in and, and, and try the best we can to apply biblical wisdom in different areas or stand up for the lost or stand up for those who are downtrodden or those things. That's good, but oh, watch out because most of the time, I get riled up over things that are really about me. And we're to submit to authority. The question really at the end of the day, the last question here in this piece, why is it written this way? Honestly, take a look at the text and ask yourself, why did he do this? Why didn't he give us a nuanced flow? Instead, he just flat out said, you know what? You need to submit to the government. You need to pay your taxes, even if the government is not good. The government is God's servant. The government is set up by God. Why is it so strong? I want to point out a couple things. Make sure you see. One is realize who he's writing to. Remember in all of this, he's writing to Rome, right? This letter's going to Rome. Things are getting passed around in the church at Rome. Guess who gets to read this? Civil authorities in Rome, right? The governor. Maybe even Caesar might. Just think about Caesar looking at this text for a moment. Read this and they get to see who's in charge. Are they in charge? The divine emperor? No. God is in charge. The reality is, even for the emperor, he's not divine. God is. He may think he's supreme, but actually he's God's servant for the Christian's good. He may not believe it, but we can because the Bible, it's clear. Secondly, don't you think that God is more interested in our humility and in our trust than in our temporal justice? God is a God of justice, there will be justice. But in our temporal good, in our civil liberties, God wants us, Christian, primarily to be humbled in our heart and to trust Christ. We are aliens and exiles whose citizenship is in heaven. God's kingdom is where we are. Our authority, even the authority in our current situation, we need to trust, is from God. I'll say Philippians 3.20 again. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Oh, this isn't our home. Please don't get caught up in the trap of thinking this is our home, and we need to make America into God's country. Because we already have a country, and it's a country that's heaven. And it's a country that has Jesus as king. It's a country that I know will be established in the future when our king comes again. Live there. It's radical. 
Salvation is radical. And this radical response we have in sacrificial, genuine love. There's another piece to see. It's with debt. Look with me at verse 7. Again, you think, how does debt relate to love? We'll pick up in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Pay what is owed. That's love. Yeah, he's setting up for us as a Christian. We don't say, hey, this world's going to burn. I know it's going up. I'll just collect a bunch of stuff and send out IOUs. Because guess what? <laughs> Future's so bright, I, I got to wear shades. And with the going to burn and we can just go. So there's that thought that's in here. But here, see this, see verse 7, right? Pay what is owed. So we are in situation where we owe, right? Taxes are owed. Taxes are owed. Why? Because there's governments and has authority to do that, unfortunately. Death and taxes. Sure things. That means they're sure there's going to be taxes next year too, right? So you're not like, oh, pay whatever you owe, i.e., um, get out of your debt and you won't have any anymore. No, next year's going to roll around too. And there'll be a new tax bill. If there's revenues that you have to pay, pay it. He's talking about things that I don't like to pay, like permit fees and park fees, flat tire disposal fees, a nickel for a paper bag. It's a good thing this is in the text this week. It's a good thing. I just had a little the re- electrical repair to my house that had to be done. I was so tempted. Why do I have to go to the government and get a piece of paper that says that I got to do what? I can put wires together. I can have somebody do that. I got to go pay money to the government. It's so foolish. If I would have done that, I miss, right? I miss a, a, a pretty amazing witnessing piece where the guy has to come out and come into my home and I get to talk to him. Hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor. <laughs> you go to church? Whole conversation I would have missed, right? If I would have taken things in my hand and say, instead of going God's way, who says, submit and pay what you need to pay, you say, hey, I'm going to do what the government requires because God's in charge of it. And God says, you submit and you do the things that they say to do, even though you, in your wisdom, say, foolishness. Speed limit of 20. We're tempted not to. Because we think that people don't deserve or somehow we judge it. Somehow they're not Christian. But God sets up authorities. It's not our role to remove it. It's interesting that verse 7, right? Assumes that you have debts. You owe taxes. You owe revenue to give. You owe respect. And then verse 8 says, owe no one anything. I have seen this first text Proof text over and over to say, make sure you don't have debts. But realize we just got off of verse 7. Pay what you owe to everyone. Pay your taxes. Well, you can't ever get out of your taxes. Pay honor. I thought maybe what it means is don't have any debts anywhere. Make sure financially you have no debts. So don't you dare take out a debt. Some people would say this. That's not what the text says at all. Why do I say that? Because it's like honor. It says pay back 
honor where honor is due. So I honor someone. Have I paid that back? Do I ever pay back enough honor? Says, okay, once I, I haven't, my, my dad, I respect and honor my dad. So one day I say, I'm here to come pay back the honor that's due my dad. And I come back and I say, oh, dad, I'm so glad you raised me. Thank you. Do I walk away saying, okay, I'm done honoring my dad. Praise the Lord that I did all that was required of me. That, that's not the point, is it? I will consistently need to, I have that debt throughout my whole life of honoring my father. I have debts my whole life towards giving revenues when they're required, towards giving taxes when they're required. I don't get out of them. So it's not saying don't ever take out a debt, is it? That's not the point of the verse. It's not saying today you can't have a home loan. Not saying that. What is it saying? What is he saying? So the idea could be owe nobody anything but love. A lot of people go this way. But the unfortunate thing is that we continue to owe. So then it would be a, a something that couldn't be done. The idea could be pay down everything, but you can never pay down love. That's okay, but you also really can't pay down honor. So that's not right. It's best to think not as a thought. You have a huge debt to love. Think about that for a minute. Because in a sense, there's truth in it. I'm not against the truth of thinking with you that we have an amazing debt to Jesus Christ, don't we? He has bought us. He died for us. He gave us life. Everything I have is due him. And yet it's not a debt. Why not? I can't pay it back. You must not pay back Jesus, right? You cannot pay back Jesus. If I slipped into the mentality of I'm paying back Jesus today, here, have to have here. That's just one drop in the bucket of what I owe Jesus. What are you doing? Well, pretty soon, I hope, more and more, as I get better, as I do more good things, pretty soon Jesus and I will be even. Hey, Jesus, paid you back. Paid in full, ran across my forehead. Never. Never. If you're thinking that way, you're thinking wrongly because you're going into merit, and here I am thinking I'm getting good. So we never pay back a debt to Jesus, and yet we have this idea that we love, and in fact, owe no one anything if not loving each other. So if not there, if not loving each other. This way, look, look, think of it this way. When I pay my taxes, it's an act of love. When I honor my dad, it's an act of love. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that my dad was perfect when I was growing up, does it? It means that I'm choosing to say, I, I desire to honor you, and I want to do it lovingly. When I pay my taxes, it's not, oh, I hate this. Ugh. I can't stand paying taxes. Where's the Cayman Islands when you need them? It's not that. It's praise the Lord here. May, may the Lord bless you. When you pay your revenues, when you pay respect, when you do all of those things, oh, do them in love. Because that's where we live now. We live here. Jesus Christ has loved you. You cannot and will not pay him back ever. But our response is to love each other. And this is radical, that we can pay back what we owe in terms of taxes or revenue or honor. We don't have to wiggle out. We can do it with love. Hey, this is God's money, and you're God's kid. 
And he's taking care of you. So if he's giving you resources that you can give in order that he can have glory and be honored because he states that his authority is who you're supposed to follow, I do it gladly. It's amazing. So love, love, love. Patient, love is. Kind, love is. Love has no thought, thinks no evil. That's us rushing around, trying to help each other, even trying to live under authority in this way. We're popping and cracking. We need to end. So we'll have to pick this up next week. But I want you to see as, as we finish here how important it is how important it is that the gospel has come so that our lives are changed. There would be no way I would ever stand under a government that isn't entirely just. There would be no way I wouldn't go fight to establish what I think is the best and the truest if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where you and I, together, we say we're going to be humble because God's in charge. I trust him. My Savior has come. I trust him. My life is about love. It's not about me. Even if I get personally hurt, it's okay because heaven is in front of me. And I can, with anything that's required of me or that I owe, I can lovingly and with joy do those things because I know my treasure is in heaven. That's where we live. Doesn't mean you can't take out a debt, but boy, you need to pay that back, right? Joyfully. Doesn't mean you don't want to go pay your taxes. You do. You can even desire to pay as least as possible under the law. That's okay. But we pay them joyfully. Okay, we'll pick up here. Again, let's, let's pray. Mm-hmm.